Good morning. I am Peter Smith, a member here at Faith Covenant. Last Sunday, Pastor Nate walked us through the final chapters of Ezra. That concluded the first half of our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Today, we begin Nehemiah. But before we dive in, I'd like to review a bit. Back in July, when we began this series, Pastor Nate reminded us of the context. The Israelites had forsaken God's commands, and God allowed them to be carried away to Babylon in exile. Do you remember the plight they were in? One, the covenant was in ruins. Two, the temple was in ruins. And three, Jerusalem and its walls were in ruins. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we see God's heart for restoration, his desire to redeem his people. We have been following the story of how God's people went from ruins to restoration. Do you remember the high-level outline Pastor Nate gave us back on July 19? The three W's that, in, that are in ruin and need to be restored? Worship, word, wall. Worship. Zerubbabel restores the temple. God moved in the heart of the king of Persia and the Israelites so that a group of exiles led by Zerubbabel was able to return to Jerusalem. In Ezra 1.6, we followed as they rebuilt the temple. Two, word. Ezra restores the covenant. Then we followed Ezra. Remember how we read in Ezra 7.10, the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. We looked at how God used Ezra to restore his people back to a covenant relationship, how he used Ezra to call the people back to his law, his word. Now in Nehemiah 1 and 2, we see the beginnings of another restoration. Wall. Nehemiah restores Jerusalem. Let's put this historical time in context. Nehemiah is living not in Babylon, but in the citadel of Susa, in Persia, after Persia conquered the kingdom of Babylon. And like some other Jews we know, Daniel and Esther come to mind, Nehemiah is in a high position in this foreign land. He is cupbearer to the king, serving in the king's court. By this time, there have already been two waves of Jews returning to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel led the first wave in 538 B.C. Eighty years later, Ezra led the second wave. The book of Nehemiah starts about 14 years after Ezra left. I can picture Nehemiah as a child, growing into his identity. We are God's chosen people. The blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exiled for a time, but now in the time of restoration. I can see Nehemiah growing into a man and reading Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and places where you, I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Imagine reading that in 445 B.C. Though you and your family are still in exile, this is the time foretold by the prophets. You are reading prophecy that is coming true. The Lord is calling his people back from captivity. Already a group has gone with Zerubbabel, and just recently, a few years ago, a group went with Ezra. Some of your extended family has even returned to Jerusalem and is living there now. How exciting! Nehemiah lives and serves in Persia, but his heart is in Jerusalem. His people are returning to their home. God is blessing them once more. And it is in this context that we start Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Here Nehemiah is, and one of his relatives who went to Jerusalem has traveled back. He can't wait for a long talk. Now he can get a first-hand report of the glories of the people restored to their land. Verse 3, They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. I don't know if we 21st century people fully understand the importance of walls. For people back then, a city without walls was a city condemned to danger. The people would live in constant peril of an outsider marching through. There would be no chance to build wealth or consequence because any jealous strong man in the area could muster a group of armed men and come take it for himself. Walls gave the inhabitants of the city the ability to defend themselves build wealth, gain prestige. And Jerusalem, the glorious capital of Israel, the seat of the temple, still lies in ruins. At the mercy of any marauding band that might come by, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. How does this match with the promises God had given? How did that match with God's plan to restore and redeem? Fifty years before Nehemiah, the prophet Zechariah pointed to God's plan to redeem Jerusalem. Reading in Zechariah, Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be built. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Nehemiah must have been thinking, how can this be true? How can Zion, Jerusalem, the city of the king, be chosen and overflow with prosperity if it still lies in ruin, with no way to defend itself? Do you feel it? The gut punch Nehemiah must have felt that night, his excitement to hear about the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, his anticipation to learn about the vanguard of the exiles return to Jerusalem, giving way to sorrow. Where is God's restoration? The people are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. How do we respond to disappointment, to hardship, to setback, to ruin? What if our disappointment is in what God is doing or is not doing? Let's look together at how Nehemiah responded. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. In Nehemiah's response, we are given a glimpse of God's character, his heart for restoration, his desire to redeem his people. We are also provided a roadmap for how we can respond to disappointment and ruin. Nehemiah turns to the God of heaven. I'd like to highlight four aspects of Nehemiah's response in prayer. First, he mourned. The world needs restoration. Nehemiah's initial response is not to sit down and come up with a plan to address the current felt need. He does not start by building a coalition of supporters to go fix the problem. His initial response is not comforting words to his brother who just brought the news. Take heart, brother. It will all work out in the end. No. His initial reaction is to mourn to lament, to weep, to fast, to cry out to God in sorrow. God, things are not right. The world needs God's redemptive touch. I sometimes wonder if our self-reliant, in our self-reliant, resourceful, get-it-done culture, if we overlook this important step. When confronted with a problem, with a heartbreaking reality, where do we start? How often do we jump straight to trying to solve it instead of stopping and giving ourselves time to mourn with God? Isn't this what we see modeled for us in the Psalms? In so many Psalms, the psalmist comes to God in mourning or complaint. God, we have a problem. The world is not right. Psalm 5, King David starts, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 74, oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Psalm 121, 
I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Can you hear Nehemiah praying those passages? God, I'm disappointed. The world is broken. Things are not right. We need you. Nehemiah took time to mourn. Second, he took ownership. He needs redemption. Picking up in verse 5, Then I, that's Nehemiah, said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Notice how personal Nehemiah's confession is here. Nehemiah was born after the fall of Jerusalem, after the people were carried away in exile. This exile his people are in is a result of God's punishment for crimes committed before he was born. He could easily have viewed the current plight of the nation as natural consequences of the actions of other people as the responsibility of prior generations. Instead, he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted. We have not obeyed. Nehemiah recognized that he personally, his family, his people need God's redemption now. Nehemiah owns it. Do we take ownership? When we read the headlines in the news today, when we look around us, we see racism, inequality, injustice, consumerism, greed, glorification of sex and violence, fear and selfishness. Do we roll our eyes, shake our heads at the plight of our country? So many problems caused by other generations, caused by a different group, caused by others, if only they would make better decisions. Remember our passage from last week, the final chapters of Ezra. Remember Pastor Nate pointing out how Ezra prayed in chapter 9, when confronted with the sins of the people, he confessed, our guilt, our sins. Pastor Nate reminded us of the importance of group identity, that we need to take ownership of the purity of the community around us, especially the purity of the church. We are in mutual covenant together, so if there are problems in the church, if there is sin or a broken relationship, do we confess it and own it? God, this is our country, our society, our community, our church. Forgive us. And closer to home, in our lives, when we confront the disappointment of a broken relationship, problems at work or problems at home, it is so easy to see how those around us have wronged us, betrayed us, hurt us. I remember a time when I was a child and my younger brother Phil threw my Lego helicopter down the stairs. It broke and some of the pieces were missing. I went to my parents and he got in trouble. 
I was pretty pleased with myself back then. But looking back, I realized that the only reason he got mad and threw my Lego helicopter down the stairs was because of how I was treating him. I was selfish. I was mean. Like so many times in life, I was quick to point a finger, to see the wrong done to me. But if I were to truly look at the heart of the situation, I, the older brother, had set the conditions for the conflict in the first place. I am a sinner. Do we confess our sin, our role in the brokenness in our society and relationships, and our need of redemption to the God who longs to restore us? So Nehemiah mourned the world needs restoration, took ownership, he needs redemption, and third, he spoke truth. God's heart is for restoration. In his prayer, Nehemiah stated, for himself and for God, the truth of the situation. God's heart is for restoration. And I love how his prayer begins. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember, he did not start here. This is after several days of mourning and prayers that are not recorded. But as God worked in his heart through that time of mourning and fasting and prayer, he comes to the point where he can lift his head and say, Great and awesome God. How important this is to set the context. In the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of disappointment, we can go to the great and awesome God, the God of heaven. This is our God. He is the one who keeps his covenant of love. Nehemiah continues in verse 8, Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is looking into the character of God and remembering who God is and what God has promised. Early this year, in our church reading plan, we read through Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, God promised the Israelites, When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. Do you catch the parallels in Nehemiah's prayer? Nehemiah is praying God's promises back to God. God, you said you want to redeem your people. You promised to bring us back and restore us. And then I love the shift in verse 10. Nehemiah goes from remembering what God has said to remembering what God has done. These Israelites, these exiles you, re, you are bringing back to Jerusalem, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Nehemiah is reminding himself, acknowledging what God has already done. 
God's heart for restoration has been on display for generations. His covenant with Abraham, the renewal of the covenant with Isaac and Jacob, his guidance of Joseph, the mighty redemption of the Israelites from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. God's purpose has been to create a people for himself, a people to be in a covenant love relationship with him. It is God's plan to redeem them. God's heart is for restoration. This is what God does. This is who God is. Remember your people, Nehemiah prays, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God restores. God redeems. God brings his people into a covenant love relationship with himself. This is true for us today. We are children of a new covenant, a covenant of love through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God has fulfilled his promises. We are redeemed. And so when we face a crisis or a disappointment, like Nehemiah, we need to remember God's heart for restoration and speak that truth to ourselves and into the situation we are facing. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God has redeemed us for himself. He who redeems us is the God of restoration. In summary, Nehemiah mourned the world needs restoration, took ownership, he needs redemption, spoke truth, God's heart is for restoration, and finally, for Nehemiah prepared to act, God works restoration through us. Continuing his prayer in Nehemiah, verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. As we saw, Nehemiah began his journey in mourning, sitting, weeping, fasting in prayer before God of heaven. That was where he started. But he didn't stay sitting, unmoving. No, he stepped up to join God in the restoration of his people. God is in the restoration business, and he chooses to do that work of restoration through his people, through Zerubbabel, through Ezra, through Nehemiah, through us. Nehemiah had seen God's heart, so Nehemiah joins God in his restoration project. Here in chapter 1, we don't yet know Nehemiah's plan, but he clues us into it. He is going to use his position as the cupbearer to the king to petition the king to help the Israelites. Nehemiah assesses, where has God placed me? What has God given me? And then he asks, give me favor in the presence of this man, the king. It reminds me of the famous line from Esther, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
Nehemiah had been placed by God in a high position in the court of the current superpower. And Nehemiah decides to use that position to seek to join God in the restoration of his people. We cannot end this morning without glancing ahead at chapter 2. Here we see the beginning of Nehemiah's adventure of working restoration with God. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan. Is anyone paying attention to the time frame here? Nehemiah's brother came to him in chapter 1 with the news of of Jerusalem's plight in the month of Kislev, which is November-December time frame. Now in the month of Nisan, which falls in March-April spring period, four months have passed since Nehemiah heard the news. Four months spent seeking God, waiting on Him, building a foundation of prayer before acting. Several commentators contrasted the time spent praying, four months, with the time it later took Nehemiah to build the wall. In chapter 6, we will see them complete the wall after 52 days of work, less than two months of building, four months spent in prayer and in the preparation of his heart, seeking God's favor in timing. Continuing, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? The time for action has come, and then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. I love that verse. Here we are at the moment of truth. Four months of prayer, and here is the opening he has been praying for. The time is now, and what does Nehemiah do? He prays and acts. Here I go, God. It's all on you now. Faith in action. What an awesome thing to behold. Total dependence on God to do the work and faithfulness to step out as a participant in God's restorative work. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Jerusalem. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Once more, we see God at work. The same God who called Abraham... 
The same God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the same God who moved in Cyrus' heart to set the first, send the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, that same God is at work here. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem escorted by cavalry and with letters of recommendation from the king. God is bringing the people back from ruins to restoration. What about you? What about me? Can we relate to Nehemiah in chapter 1, finding out that all is not well, that the wall is in ruins? Are there promises of God that go unfulfilled in our lives? Are there hopes we have that have not yet come true? What disappointments do we carry? What are there ruins around us that need to be restored? The year 2020, it isn't working out as planned or expected. Family troubles that are far from fairy tale, happily ever after. Job difficulties. Habits that keep pulling us down, relationships that burden rather than encourage. When disappointed, when confronted with ruins, how do we respond? How do we move from ruin to restoration? Do we seek to drown it out with entertainment, busyness, or distractions? Do we ignore it and hope it will go away? Or... Do we align ourselves with God's heart for restoration? We are invited into relationship with the God of heaven. We are invited to join him in his restoration and redemption. So as we view the brokenness of the world around us, the disappointments in our lives, the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises, let me encourage us to take some of the same steps. One, mourn. Allow yourself space to mourn and lament. The world is broken and needs restoration. God's heart hurts too at the brokenness of the world. We weep with him when we weep at the results of sin and conflict. Spend time before the God of heaven in mourning at the ruins yet to be restored. Two, take ownership of the brokenness. We ourselves are in need of redemption. Only through God's forgiveness and grace can we be part of the healing. We need to confess our own sin and our own contribution to the ruins around us. Three, speak truth. God's heart is for restoration. Claim God's promises. Remember his words. Apply the truths of the Bible to the situation at hand. Remember God's work on the cross. Remember his work in your life. Remember his work in our community. God wants to restore. He is restoring. God's character is one of goodness and love and redemption. Speak truth into your situation, into the ruins. Four, prepare to act. God works restoration through us. What is your role in bringing restoration to the ruins around us? How can we join God in the work he is doing and let, work, let him work through us to bring ruins to restoration?
And when the time comes to act, we might remember Nehemiah 2.4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. 